1: What's going on, everybody? We are taking a much needed week off this week. We're gonna get some rest and relaxation, but we don't wanna leave you hanging. So while we do that, we are going to play one of our best interviews, one of our most favorite interviews we have ever done in over two years of the show. And to celebrate the Browns opening training camp, we are going to replay our interview that we did with all-time Browns great offensive lineman and future Hall of Famer, Joe Thomas. So check that out. And be sure to catch us next week when we return live. Until then, have a great week and cheers, everybody.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data,
1: All right, episode 100 continues to be the episode of legends here on the Garage Beers podcast, and this is no different by any stretch. A member of the Cleveland Browns Ring of Honor, a winner of countless awards, holder of one of the craziest records in sports when he played 10,363 consecutive snaps, and he is now an NFL Network Analyst. It is Joe Thomas. Joe, welcome to the Garage Beers podcast.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I'm excited to be here. We have, yeah,
4: have we have, I, it, in my head, Jill. I want you to know that I'm doing the Wayne's World, like we're not worthy thing right now. <laughs> but I've got, but I've like I've got bad knees. I'm afraid I won't be able to get up. <laughs> you and me both,
3: brother.
1: <laughs> if, you, if you give us the Native American definition of Milwaukee right now, um, oh my gosh,
3: that's a great question. I have no idea, but pretty much every city. Near where I grew up, Menominee Falls, uh, Wanakee, Waukesha, they're all Indian names. And I don't know what any of them mean.
1: (laughs) Probably like multiple rivers or something like that. Right. Right. You can never go wrong wrong with that. Uh, So our first obvious question for you, Joe, this is the Garage Beers podcast. Mm -hmm. Now we're recording this in the middle of the day. So like responsible adult (laughs) human beings, we have not cracked open any beers. I'm still in the coffee after watching last night's game. Uh, Mm -hmm. But if we were... To be enjoying a garage beer what would be the beer of choice for joe thomas oh the great
3: Lakes 73 the the wonderful Kolsch brewed for yes, yes, multiple yes. seasons multiple disappointing seasons now uh, <laughs> right there in west 25th street um right there in ohio city cleveland the greatest beer that you can buy and it's a it's a great tailgate beer that's exactly why we brewed it right you can sit there and have a few at the tailgate or a few too many Uh, and it's not going to fill you up too much, but you're definitely going to feel happy when you're walking out of there, no matter what happened uh, with the end of the game. That's right.
4: That's awesome. Now, is that, now, is that how that, is that how that process played out? Like, were you thinking like, oh, what's a good tailgate beer? What can we like? How can we collab on that? How, like, how did that come about?
3: Yeah, so the next door neighbor, um, when I was living in Westlake, he was actually the CEO of Great Lakes, and him and I were just having beers on my back deck, like towards the end of one season. And he's like, you know what? I know you can't do it when you're playing, but he said, as soon as you retire, it would be fun to collaborate and do a Joe Thomas beer. So I'm like, that's all I need to hear. And he's like, don't you want to know the details? I'm like, no, just brew a beer with me. I don't care. I'll pay you. Twist my rubber arm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so a couple of years later, I retired and he was still the CEO. So we sat down much earlier than it is right now, like 8 a.m. in the pub there uh, at Great Lakes Brewing in Ohio City. Excuse me. And uh, me, the CEO, and then their two brewmasters sat down with like a table full of beers and just started pouring beers. And they started educating me on, you know, hey, I think you like this beer because of this. You don't like this because of this. And we just kind of came up with a beer that was drinkable for tailgates, but also had a little bit of character and a little bit of flavor, you know, more than just some very light beer, which I also enjoy. But, um, you know, if you're looking for something that has a little more body, a little more character, that's going to hold up as things get a little cool during the tailgate season, that's your beer.
1: I love the thought of the CEO of, of Great Lakes thinking he had to give you some big sales pitch.
3: Yeah, right? like, I had like, this yeah. big pitch in my head. And you're just yeah. like, yeah, no. let's do that. No, let's go, baby. Who doesn't love beer <laughs> and beer with my name on it?
1: That's free even better. Yeah. So right. I was I was wondering if we we're gonna get the what was it the new Glarius the spotted cow oh spotted cow is good
3: yeah but so the spotted cow is is they call it a kolsch but it's more like a farmhouse sale it's not it's not brewed in like true Kolsch fashion like our Kolsch is so there's like a mini rivalry going on but Ooh. additionally you can't get Spotted Cow anywhere except for Wisconsin. I do like the beer, um, but you can't buy it anywhere else. And so I think that that holds back a little bit when I want to tell people about the greatness of, of Spotted Cow. Because, you know, the, some of it's like the scarcity, right? You can't get it here. So when sure. you can, you got to drink it and you got to get it. Um, but I definitely think Great Lakes makes better beer. So I'm, I'm feeling com- comfortable about that.
1: That was a good answer. And it was a good sales pitch. And if you need <laughs> beers, go get the Colt 73 here from Great Lakes. It is delicious. Uh, All right. So something just happened recently and it it made me think of you. And so it's going to work our way and its way into this conversation. Recently, it was announced that Miles Garrett would become the first ever Browns player Mm. to earn a 99 rating in Madden. Yeah. And I thought that doesn't sound right. Yeah, it doesn't sound right because there's no Mm -hmm. way that Joe Thomas didn't earn a 99 rating. In Madden, and it comes to find out, I come to find out that you peaked at ninety eight, Joe.
3: Is, oh God, what a disappointment! That means I have to strap the cleats back on and get back out there and go earn my rightful ninety nine rating. Yeah, how right. angry
1: are you about this? This is an outrage. Yeah,
3: I'm fuming. You know, it was funny because the Browns asked me to yeah. call Miles on Facetime and do the official, you know, announcement for him. You know, to let him know that he'd become a member of the ninety nine club, and they told me I was like. Was I ever 99? Because so I played a little bit of video games as a kid, a lot. Okay. Like most kids, (laughs) like Madden, NHL hockey, 94, I started. And uh, then I played the NCAA football and I loved all of it. But then when you get to college, you don't have quite as much time. You got, you know, a little bit more busyness. So I played a little bit, but then when I got the NFL, like you just don't have time for video games. If you're an offensive lineman that has to like watch film and study, like some of those other positions, that's all they do is video games because they got nothing (laughs) To study. There's no playbook. Just go get the guy with the ball. Okay. I can do that. Um, but so I, I was like out completely out of the video game world, um, until like this year, really. So I didn't even know where I was in Madden. And I just did assume like you guys that I was in 99 because the Browns told me I was a 99 and they were asking me to announce the miles. And then it was like two days later that I found out I actually wasn't a 99. So I definitely felt very humbled in that moment. Uh, It's definitely where the comeback has creeped into my
1: head now. Uh, If you ever need to read something great, uh, and anybody listening to this, Google Ethan Albright letter to John Madden. Nice. Uh, It's about his rating, and it's totally fake. It's totally fake, but it's (laughs) one of the funniest things you'll read ever. Nice. Nice. uh, So listen, uh, we can talk all your accomplishments and all your awards and all that stuff, uh, but I think one of the most difficult things you accomplished in your entire career playing for the Browns uh, is that you played for the Browns your entire career, uh, from from Romeo Crinell to Hugh Jackson, from from Derek Anderson uh, to Deshaun Kaiser? Uh, you saw it all. You were part of it all. Uh, how did you make it through that? And uh, and what was it about Cleveland and the Browns that kept you here in the midst of? one of the mm-hmm. worst-run organizations mm-hmm. in all of sports.
3: Yeah, it was tough. Uh, a lot of tough years there. A lot, a couple owners, a lot, like you mentioned, a lot of head coaches, a lot of general managers. I had nine offensive coordinators, which is Ugh. the thing that I feel is my <sighs> feather in my cap. Like, hey, I, I do it through <laughs> nine different <laughs> offensive coordinators and different offenses, and I think that's why it's been an easy transition for me to be an analyst because I've seen every offense there's out there. And actually <laughs> – Kyle Shannon came to be our coordinator, like year seven or eight in my career. And I was really excited because that up until that point was that that was the only offense that I hadn't played in yet. So it was going to give me my first opportunity to play there so I could finish, you know, finish the, uh, the bucket list of offenses. And it was really cool to kind of have that broad background. But I think first, first of all, when I got drafted in Cleveland, I felt an immediate love for the city and the fan base because it reminded me a lot of Milwaukee where I grew up. Um, it reminded me of the Packers fan base, how loyal and passionate the the fans are, but um, it wasn't until being in Cleveland for seven, eight years and seeing how much losing that we dealt with or went through or uh, bestowed upon the fan base and they were still loyal, which was amazing to me. And I'm not sure that you can say that about any other fan base in pro football that like it was still the life of Cleveland folks of Northeast Ohio people, no matter if you're winning or losing. And and sometimes even when you're losing, it was even more a part of people's life because that's all they wanted to talk about. How do you fix the Browns? Um, So I felt like a real uh, sense of love and attachment with the people in Cleveland and the people with uh, of the Cleveland Browns fan base. And so I felt sort of um, responsible to try to bring a winner to this organization. And I really fell in love with the organization and the people, maybe not always the direction or how things were handled, but like, it's a really good organization of people. Right. And I think anybody who's worked in any stretch of the world, like your company is all about the quality of people and like your enjoyment of your job is about the people that you work with on a daily basis. Yes. Success is obviously the most important thing, but do you enjoy coming to work every day? And I enjoyed going to work every day in Berea. Um, and so there was never really anything in my mind <clears throat> that made me say, Hey, I got to get out of here, right? There's plenty of guys that I think are probably miserable <coughs> going into work from day to day basis. Sure. But I loved it. I loved the grind. I love being part of, in my mind, a turnaround of turning the once proud Browns who had gone through this terrible stretch of bad football into a Super Bowl champion. Like to me, that would have been the ultimate in my sporting career and i saw those guys that wanted to like leave to go somewhere else to try to win a super bowl and some of them did right yeah but i always felt that it was a little bit hollow because you weren't there building it from the ground up you were Mm -hmm. just kind of a passenger that got on the train one stop before you got to the super bowl and so uh, there was always that motivating and driving force of like bringing this franchise back
4: sure Wow. Hey, and the fishing here isn't too bad either, right? Yeah. And Lake Erie's not too bad. I didn't even get into
3: the real reason why I love Cleveland the fishing, yeah. the hunting.
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so now to, to, to piggyback off of that, Joe, you know, um, of all the cool coaches and quarterbacks that you played with here, uh, it's a two, two part question. Of all the coaches and quarterbacks you played with here, is there anyone that sticks out in your mind that you think might have got the rawest deal here in Cleveland? And my second part is, uh, I read somewhere that
3: Peyton tried to recruit you to Denver. And is that yeah. true? <laughs> yes. So the the brief Peyton story, yes. It was the year that they won the Super Bowl. Peyton won his Super Bowl in Denver. And they had a Pro Bowl left tackle named Ryan Clady, yeah. who ended up tearing his patellar And I think, like early on in the yeah. season. And John Elway was looking for a replacement because they were all in, you know, kind of like how the Rams are right now. This was what the Broncos were doing seven years ago. And with Peyton not being the most fleet of foot quarterbacks (laughs) that was out there, he was like, we need to find somebody that can protect for him. So him and Ray Farmer, who was the GM of the Browns at the time, had a lot of conversations about, Hey, how do we make this work? Ray Farmer and Sashi Brown, I think were together as a president GM. And I think they were having conversations and there were some pretty serious conversations about like, Hey, we can make this happen. But I think from their perspective, they were sort of on thin ice and they were really concerned unless they totally hit a home run and just easily won. And everybody in the fan base and in the organization said, you have to do that type of deal. They were worried about kind of trading away the guy that had had the most success in the new era, the Cleveland Browns. And if I would go on and win a super bowl and have a lot of success, and let's say those draft picks didn't pan out or whoever they traded for, you know, I don't think they wanted that, on their resume. They didn't want to be known as the guy that traded me and then, you know, got nothing in return essentially. So I think what their strategy was like, just drag our feet and allow the trade deadline to expire. And that's what ended up happening. But while this was all going on, basically Elway offered like a first and I don't know, a third, or I, I don't really know exactly yeah. what it turned out to be, but I'm sure Mary Kay would tell you what exactly <laughs> it was. I can't remember. But at that point, the Browns said basically no. And Elway said, "The only way we're going to get Joe is if he demands a trade." And so Elway tells Peyton, "Okay, that's what's the deal is." Peyton's got my number from playing together with him at the Pro Bowl. So I'm laying in bed watching Sunday Night Football with my wife one night, and I get this call from like a Denver area code, and and I'm like, "Man, yeah, I might as well answer. I'm not doing anything." So I answered it, and it's like, "Hey, Joe, this is your drinking buddy from the Pro Bowl." And I'm like. Oh hey Peyton, what's up? <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? And he's like, hey man, we've got to get you out to Denver. I need a left tackle. But the Browns won't trade you unless you demand a trade. So here's what I want you to do. Go up to Ray Farmer's office, pull your pants down and take a shit on his desk and go we'll the next day. And I was like, That sounds like a great plan. I don't see how this couldn't possibly work. So gonna, of course that didn't happen. But uh, it felt pretty good that Peyton Manning was calling to try to recruit me to Denver with yeah. a great game
1: plan. I love the I love the uh, the willingness to just be like, here's what I need you to do, Joe. Yeah,
3: here's what, here's what we need you to do. Like, you know, he's used to well, being on a, payroll general
1: his whole life.
3: Like, you know, he just tells people what to do, and they usually do it. And I thought it was a pretty good strategy, uh, and I may have tried it if it wasn't Cleveland. If, if I didn't have the disillusion like all fans that oh, this is going to be our year, we're going to win the Super Bowl, or maybe – more properly. Next year is going to be our year. We're going to have all these great draft picks and we're going to turn it around and we're going to win the Super Bowl. And I'm going to be so mad at myself that I left the very year that we turned it around. Right. I feel like that's every Browns fan in their back of their mind. Like, ah, I don't know if
1: I can do this anymore, but
3: the year I leave the fan base is the year they win it all. And then I'm never going to let
1: myself live this one down. <laughs> Can you believe we're doing this again, Joe? Can you believe? Can you I know. Believe, God, can you believe just, we're we're doing this again?
3: Oh, after the Monday night game against the Steelers, I, I and going into that game, like obviously we we're out out of the playoffs, but I still hadn't accepted the fact that it was over for this year because this was the year of so much hope and so much yeah. opportunity and possibility. Um, but there was still part of me like, ah, you know, we can play well, look good, and start feeling good about next season and, you know, send big Ben out with a loss. But of course, alas, none of those things happened. We looked worse than we did the entire season.
1: I just, it's like, it's, 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 how are we back here? How are we? I I thought we were clear of this. I thought we were clear of this and we are back. We are back at finishing the season the worst possible ways and wondering how on earth we're going to get better for next year. Maybe, maybe they needed it. I don't know. Maybe they were feeling themselves too much, uh, but we're back. Uh, mm. sp- with all that in mind, I mean, you went through everything. And, and Chad asked a question before, and and you gave a great story about Peyton, but I'm interested in the question because you went through a lot of coaches. You went through nine coordinators uh, and, and several head coaches. Is there one guy that when you look back at your career, you're mm. like, man, that guy was the guy for the job, and he just got like a raw deal. Or I really mm-hmm. liked this coach, and it just – he shouldn't mm-hmm. have been let go or whatever.
3: There's head coaches that I liked. Um, I thought Rob Chadzinski kind of got a raw deal. I mean, only given him one year, that's not really – Uh, much of an opportunity to prove yourself. He was a first-time head coach. He'd had success as an offensive coordinator in a number of places. He was an Ohio guy, um, which, you know, doesn't mean a whole lot, but it it was more important to him than anybody else that comes through here because he grew up a Browns fan. And his only season as the head coach, they didn't even give him a running back because the strategy from the top was, hey, we don't care about winning this year. We're trying to build a culture. And we're saving draft space, draft capital, draft picks, salary cap room for next year. So yeah, we don't have a running back, but we'll just get some old guy off the scrap heap, and he'll get you a first down on third and inches. And that's all you can expect, right? Which that's who we had that year with Willis McGee. Oh, but then oh, at the end of the yeah. season, all of a sudden, the goalposts move on him, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, you're fired." And he's like, "Well, that's kind of bullshit." Like. I, I was told that I wasn't going to be judged on wins and losses in this year and that we were building for the future. And all of a sudden that changes, you know, why? And then they, in my opinion, you know, replace them with Ray Farmer and um, Mike, Mike Patton. Yeah, it was and, yeah. you know, it was like, and I think it's been well-documented that they, they sort of thought that they could get rid of Chud and upgrade, you know, uh, and they weren't able to do that. and And that's why Joe Banner, I think, got, kicked out of cleveland and um i don't know he was the one guy i think that it just seemed like he got a raw deal i'm not saying he was going to win a super bowl for the browns but sure to me if you're going to go and set a course in a direction you got to give them a few years to at least see that vision through before you know if they're going to be good or bad
1: hey they were able to have like a nine hour dinner with chip kelly uh yeah that's right that that was
3: the guy was that the guy they were trying to get
1: yeah, it was yeah and then yeah.
3: he ended up going to the Eagles. I mean, he didn't end up being any good as a head coach either. So that's the <laughs> the funny thing about the head coaching thing is everybody's so sure that they got the next guy, right? We got the next Belichick for sure. Like you have the interviews and they come in and they do a great job in the press conference and they got the pedigree and everything. But the game of football, especially in the NFL, it, there's so much parity. There's very few teams that are at the top of the class every year. Like this year, you can say there's only one team that's really looks good almost every game of the year that – feels really good about their chances. And that's the green Bay Packers and everybody else is just kind of mediocre. And the coaches that survive, they've either done it in the past. So they've got some pelts on the wall. They've built up some equity with the coaching staff, or they've got a really good quarterback. So maybe the bad games don't look as bad and the good games look better than they should. Um, but in the end, like the NFL is filled with the best coaches, the best football coaches in the
1: world. Right.
3: And when you have right. 32 of the best football coaches in the world, all competing for one Super Bowl, like, especially when you have Bill Belichick, who's the greatest of all time. There's a lot of coaches that may be good coaches that are going to look like shit. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's
1: oh, yeah. a
4: great point. I'm just, picturing, I'm just picturing that waiter at that nine hour dinner going, hey, guys, <laughs> or, uh, anything else I can get yeah, you? Yeah. Or, uh,
3: uh, Sorry, guys. Uh, I'm supposed to be off at ten a. ten p.m. and it's uh, three right yeah. now. Doing that, can, doing that awkward like that.
1: babysitter's off. <laughs> doing that awkward like, hey guys, I got to get out of here, so I'm going to close you out, yeah, right. and then we'll get you another person. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about this year, uh, and I want to start with something positive and fun because it's hard right now. But mm. uh, a guy that I would imagine is probably a buddy of yours a little bit, uh, a guy that you played with, Joel Batonio. Mm-hmm. The Browns go through this stretch where every two minutes on my phone, it's dinging. This person's in protocol, and this person's in Mm -hmm. protocol, and they're going to be without this person and that person. It ravaged their team a couple weeks back. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Joel Batonio plays his whole career at at left guard, swaps over to left tackle, plays there for two weeks, and is one of the top-rated left tackles in all of football uh, during those two weeks. So Mm -hmm. from one of the greatest left tackles of all time... (laughs) How impressive is that? How, how difficult is that to switch over from left guard to left tackle and to be as good as he was?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, left tackle is the hardest position in all of pro sports, not, not just on the offensive line or just in football. Like, there's nothing more difficult than that. And for a guy who plays the easiest position in football, which is guard, because on the offensive line, tackles are on an island, so they got their own problems. Centers, yeah, they don't have a lot of difficult blocks, but they're having to set the blocking assignments. So there's a much bigger cerebral aspect of that position. Guards just sit there and just help out the center and help out the tackle when they need it. And so to go from that on easy street to go out to left tackle play as well as he did is uh, one of the more remarkable feats that I've seen. I mean, he was a guy that played left tackle in college, but he was not a guy that played a ton of tackle, uh, since then, except for a little bit after I retired, they kind of bumped him out there to see if he could do it. And at the time they moved him back inside because it was pretty obvious in spring training that he couldn't do it because <laughs> it's really hard. And the technique is totally different. Um, you know, swapping from one guard to the other is hard enough just cause you're, you're, you're opposite in your head, but the techniques are the same, but an offensive tackle's kick set, like what they do in pass protection, is totally different than a guard's, and it's totally different than anything else you do on the football field. And that takes a lot of years of practice, and it takes a lot of years to kind of hone that tool. And for Joel um, to be able to play really well at that position, especially because now he's got a backup guard next to him. So you made two positions worse when you when your left tackle goes on COVID, right? And that's why we always said we didn't like to move offensive linemen around to fill in when guys get hurt. Because as soon as you take your guard and you move him to tackle, now your guard's worse and your tackle's worse. Whereas if you just keep your guard where he is and you can bring somebody else in to tackle, at least your guard position's really solid. So you can kind of make up for it by calling different plays or having different concepts. Um, But obviously the Browns weren't able to do that because they had so many injuries and so much COVID on their offensive line. This was their only option. Yeah.
4: Well... So, uh, so let's take it back. Let's talk about the season as a whole. Uh, again, you know, we just talked about something positive, but we got to talk about mm-hmm. what's going on. You know, it's hard to fathom, like you said, in a season with so much hope coming in that the Browns are under 500. I mean, in your eyes, I mean, I know some of this is going to be obvious, but in your eyes, what happened this season?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, I always think of the game of football in the NFL, especially it revolves around the quarterback position and the quarterback is like the tide, right? When it comes in and it's playing well, it raises everybody up. When he's not playing well, it's like the tide. All those boats, they start to go out into the ocean and they all look like shit. And it's, it's particularly on offense, receivers, offensive line, running backs, all those things fit together. Because as soon as a defensive coordinator is able to say, all right, I know a quarterback can't do X, Y, or Z. Or I can take advantage of him because I know he's only comfortable doing these things. He can call an entirely different game because now he's able to cross things off his list that he doesn't have to worry about anymore. And so you're able to, to load up on the things that you think are going to happen that are probably going to happen more often from a odds a probability standpoint. Because you know that even if he does go for those other things that you're leaving yourself vulnerable to, he probably won't make you pay. Right. And that's mm-hmm. all how defensive coordinators think. They got they think about what's a worst case scenario? How do I make sure I'm not getting beat over the top for an easy touchdown for an explosive play? And so I think it went off the rails, in my opinion, early on in the season when, when Baker throws the interception and tries to make the tackle and hurts his shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, it was like he lost confidence in himself. And then the players around him lost confidence in him. And then it was kind of a downward spiral because when you lose hope, you lose effort and preparation. And so I think the team started losing hope in their passing game. And then I don't think it's it's a conscious thing. But subconsciously, those guys, if they don't feel like they're playing for a Super Bowl anymore, they might watch five minutes less of film. They might give just a little less effort in practice. They might have a little less focus in the game. And from a receiver standpoint, it's easy to see like, hey, if I know I'm not getting the ball where it needs to be, maybe I need to save myself for that next play when I'm going to be running a play that I think I might get the football. And so then that's just like a little microcosm of what happens throughout the entire team. If they don't believe that they can win and they don't believe that in that moment, the quarterback's going to put the ball here or the running back's going to push and cut the right way he's supposed to, it's human nature to not give everything you have on that play to get that job done and to start saving yourself in other areas. And so I think, when, when Baker got hurt and then the performance of him was up and down and then it kind of trended even further downward as the season went on, as he lost confidence in himself, then it was, it was difficult to come back from because there's so much parity in the NFL. Two or three plays every single week, win or lose a game. And <clears throat> it's easy when you can score seven points on one play. And as a fan to think, oh, my gosh, we got blown out by 14 points. That could be two bad plays. And those two bad plays could come from a guy not studying five minutes extra film during the week Mm. and missing an adjustment that he should have got, but he missed it, and now his guy comes scot ass free, hits the quarterback, it's a sack fumble, or in the secondary, he didn't... he didn't see that extra route concept that they ran, and so he jumped something because he didn't think that they had you know the the double post corner, but they had it because he just missed it, and all of a sudden it's it's those one play here or there that makes you as a fan and you as a a teammate feel like, man, we got our ass kicked when really it was just a couple plays here and there, and that's why wow. the nature of football causes head coaches to become neurotic because they sit up in their office thinking it's not one play that I'm going to miss that I'm going to lose that information going into the game and I'm going to make a bad decision that I'm going to regret. And so they never sleep. They just walk out of their office on game day with bags under their eyes because all they can think about is what did I miss that I could have helped my team had I watched or done five minutes of extra work.
1: All right. So we're at a place that we were all hoping we weren't going to be for a long time, right? We're back in a familiar place. Browns are going to finish the season under five hundred. It's 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 a place we we don't want to be. But Joe, like from an analyst point of view, and from a guy that's played, and from a guy that knows the Browns, uh, a lot of fans losing a little bit of that hope. Why should the fans still be hopeful for the Browns mm-hmm. moving forward?
3: Well, you should be really hopeful because you have a really good team across the board. There's holes for sure, but you've got a defense that's played better every single week during the season. You've got a young pair of really good cornerbacks. You've got really good safeties. You've got linebackers that over the last few years have been drafted well, and they're put into positions to succeed. You've got maybe the best defensive player in the game and miles Garrett. You've got an offensive line. That's the best offensive line in the NFL. That's still all together. Hopefully Jack Conklin's able to come back next season and they can bring all five of those guys back. Got good tight ends. You've got two of the best running backs in the game you have all these great pieces like Baker when he's playing well and he has confidence is one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL. We saw that the last half of the season last year. And so you also on top of that, you've got a general manager and a strategy officer in Paul DePodesta that have shown a, a really good track record for finding talent in the first round, certainly, but also in those later rounds, which is so important for building a roster long-term. And so I, I think, if you look at, okay, there's some holes, obviously quarterback didn't play well this season, maybe some defensive line help, maybe, maybe some linebacker help, maybe some depth here and there. Maybe obviously receiver is going to be one of those big ones now that Odell's mm-hmm. not here, but those are all areas that you should feel good about going into the off season. Like we can fix these issues. Like either Baker, we feel confident that he's going to be able to return to form with some time off and. Healing up the shoulder that he can play like he did the second half of last season, or there's going to be options out there, um, whether through trade or free agency or however that works, to be able to find a new quarterback if they don't believe that Baker can be the guy. So I think the season of great hope and expectations it didn't end the way we wanted, but we're still a team that's right around 500 and. Up until last year, if you finished 500 in <laughs> the most competitive division in the <laughs> we did, North, would be celebrating
1: with a parade and not a parade. <laughs> So 16
3: think It's just a matter of our expectations changing, which is good. Like, that's healthy. That's why we should be excited about this team, because our expectations finally have changed from, I just don't want to be 4-12 and 12 or 4-13 and 13 now. Right. I just want to be competitive, which they were every week. And they were right on the cusp of making the playoffs. Can we talk about Baker for just a quick second here,
4: Joe? Because uh, I'm really curious about your thoughts on this. You know, if you look at his entire body of work, it's it's been quite a roller coaster. And I know there's other factors that have gone into that. You know, first year, came in, rookie year, lit it up. You know, set the rookie, receive, you know, rookie uh, touchdown reception record. Second year, obviously, again, other factors went in, but it didn't go as well. Third year, it, you know, started out okay, but elite the second half. You know, and then this year, obviously, injuries played a factor. So, like, what? It, it, I don't know. I guess my question is, how does he get more consistent? I guess how how yeah. does the consistency and the confidence return?
3: That's a great question, and I, I try to put myself into the position of Andrew Barry and Paul De Podesta and Kevin Stefanski, and I'm saying, all right, you know, what do I need from my quarterback? And Coaches have always said they'll take a guy that doesn't play as well with as high of a ceiling, but he's more consistent because I can expect what's going to happen. I, I kind of know a little bit more about um, what I'm going to get from him on game day. And I think with Baker, th- they're probably going to look at it and say, Hey, his ceiling is probably not as high as you know, your Josh Allen's or you guys like that who have all the physical traits um, that a shorter quarterback like Baker doesn't have. Um, but then they're also going to say if if I have Baker and he's my quarterback and I know where his ceiling is. I know he can play well enough for us to win with a team around. We saw it last season. But the biggest concerning factor with him over the four-year stretch is the inconsistency and you can tolerate some inconsistency if you're getting that super high ceiling. If you're getting like the Josh Allen's where he could go for 500 yards and just totally put his team on his back like a Lamar Jackson like these guys who Maybe don't always play excellent, but they're so good so often that you're willing to take some inconsistency. And with Baker, he hasn't shown that he has a high enough ceiling to be able to accept the wild inconsistencies. And as far as confidence goes, that's a big question mark. I don't know why he lost his confidence this season. Maybe it was the injury and maybe that injury led to him not being able to throw the football he wanted to and being confident in his ability to deliver the ball where it needed to go, which is totally reasonable. And in his mind, and this would be something that people within the building would need to have those conversations that people that know him that can get a really good sense for, Hey, once Baker gets healthy, do we feel like he can regain the confidence that he had last season? Because he was very confident. And when he's confident, he plays well. And He's, he's kind of that quarterback, a little bit of a roller coaster. When he's playing well and he's confident, those two things go together. And when he's not confident, he's not able to pull himself out of it. So the, I think the big question for the Browns, and I don't have the answer, is once he gets healthy, will he regain his confidence?
1: Yeah, well, uh, all right, Joe, we're going to let you get out of here, but we got just a couple quick hitters uh, before we go. Uh, this has been awesome. Again, uh, you know you can find Joe Thomas on Twitter, at JoeThomas73 all over the NFL network. Uh, also though, maybe, maybe he's loaded up on the deodorant, the deodorant spray, <laughs> and we may see him back in the boots doing, doing some games, yeah. doing some preseason games. Yeah, I,
3: I sure hope so. I, I really enjoyed myself and it was, um, it was really a hit a uh, touch and go for a second because I had vocal cord surgery at the beginning of August. Oh geez. And so I was like a full week of voice rest and just coming off of that, when I did those games. So I was not able to really get too excited because I was going to blow my vocal cords out. And even still, you can kind of hear it. Like I don't have the vocal strength and stamina that I used to because I had a polyp in my vocal cords. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was able to at least... Fix it enough to be able to get through the season. And I'm hoping that with some more rest through the offseason, I'll be back to close to 100%. And I certainly hope that I get to go and do the pregame show again, or, or excuse me, the preseason uh, games again, because I had so much fun doing those. And it's just enough football and just enough color commentary for me that it really wets my whistle and gets me excited without feeling like I'm overwhelmed doing like a full slate of games in the fall. And it's hot.
0: And it's It's really hot and I get
3: great free t-shirts from companies that are trying to sell their shirts that you can't see the pit stains through. (laughs) Unfortunately, with my pit stains, they might be a little better, but they're still going to be there.
1: All right, Joe, real quick. uh, uh, Name one teammate that you would say helped you the most in your career.
3: Probably Hank Fraley. Um, Early on in my career, just learning the process of going through a week of preparation in the NFL and then getting your mind in to the mindset of focus uh, on game day so that you're remembering all the different tips and tricks and things that are going on that are different that week versus the week before so that you can go out and have that Rolodex in your brain every time you come to the line of scrimmage and you're ready for the 1 million possible things that can happen so you can react to it. Hank was extremely beneficial. For helping me learn how to watch film, helping me learn how to take notes, and then bring that on to game day. And uh, it's no surprise that he's the offensive line coach for the Lions now.
1: Uh, Hank Fraley reference did not see that there coming. You uh, yeah. opponent you Who's hated guy- going oh Ooh. I was gonna say opponent who like- hated going up against the budget.
3: Um, I would say probably uh Dwight Freeney was really oh. tough because he was so good and he had that spin move that's just wicked. Like nobody's really <laughs> Had a spin move like that before. Nobody's really done it since then. Um, just so dominant. And uh, he, he definitely caused me to lose a lot of sleep on Saturday nights before we played him.
4: Uh, and uh, I, I guess a good one here is uh, who was the funniest teammate you ever had?
3: Mm. We've had a lot of funny – players come through i think rob royal he was a tight end early on in my career okay Um, what you know it's it's those guys that don't have to be quite as focused because they're probably not (laughs) like the most elite they usually have more time for humor and uh i think he he was the guy he was always dancing before uh practice started he was always dancing in the locker rooms making jokes he was kind of like that life of the party type guy that everybody loved being around and he always brought an energy to every practice and i think we always appreciated that
1: Joe Thomas, uh, this has been amazing. This is a very special episode for us. Again, episode 100, uh, and you have made it that much more special. We very much appreciate your time. Again, NFL Network. Find Joe Thomas. Go find him on Twitter at Joe Thomas 73. Joe, we're gonna crack open some cold 73s at a more yeah, appropriate baby. hour, and enjoy those. We really appreciate you. Thank you for joining us on the Garage Beers. Hey yeah,
3: guys, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me on.